I have this memory. Well, actually, it's one of those things where I can't tell if it's a memory I have or if it's something I was told or saw a long time ago and have begun remembering like it was my own memory. But so anyway, it's that I'm being babysat, have a babysitter, and I'm supposed to have gone to bed. It must be eight or nine, which at the time that was really late to me. But for some reason, I've climbed out of bed and I've... No. No, I've climbed out of bed and I've snuck down the stairs. Just down the first stair or two, not all the way to the bottom, snuck down the stairs. And in my house, the couch is positioned so it's, you know, it's back is towards the staircase and facing the TV. So I can see the back of his, the back of the babysitter's head, and I can see the TV, which is playing, a, I guess, a film about sledding or a film where the characters are sledding or something. And there are all these terrific shades of blue and white, this mirror clean snow against an ultramarine sky. And I'm, and I'm sort of between his thighs, and the sled is called the Ladybird, and I got it for Christmas two years ago. And we are flying down this hill like it's, like it's water or something. We're only down the first part or two, not all the way to the bottom, and I can feel... And it makes me remember this time. I wasn't supposed to, but I got out of bed to see what the babysitter was watching on TV because I had been banned for some reason that evening from watching TV. It, it makes me want to cry a little bit. Actually, I don't know, but I remember creeping down the first two stairs and sort of, you know, peering out and seeing there is a goat in the entryway of the house, and he's pulling the goat. Yes, he's hushing the goat. And we're on this hill and we're riding, I remember, the ladybird, and I reach my hand, which has on it a gray traveling glove, to brush the snow, and all of the snow flies up onto my hand and into my face. It's wet, and it's sweet, thick. It's not snow at all, it's cream. I get more and more the feeling I don't exist. Hi, and welcome back to Revisiting Smith's Point, the rewatch podcast where I take you episode by episode through the 70s sitcom gem. Welcome to episode 5. Today we'll be speaking of season 1, episode 5, Getting Greg's Goat. I'll start by giving a brief synopsis, followed by some production information, and then an introduction to the center of our figurative discourse for the episode. Season 1, episode 5. The synopsis is this. Nobody at the do-come-in can sleep after a scary movie plays on television. This episode was directed by Valerie Hansen and written by Ladybird A and Jubilee Sully. Valerie Hansen was a television director, actress, and producer. She worked primarily in the UK prior to Smith's Point, directing for Story Parade, Mrs. Thursday, Emergency Ward 10, Market and Honey Lane, and Trapped. Her involvement in this episode was likely a favor to Bill Craig, with whom she worked in the sixth season of British detective drama Sergeant Cork in 1966. Hansen would go on to direct season three, episode two of Smith's Point, Luke's Harry Situation, 
and continued directing primarily for television until her retirement in 1980. Lady Bird A and Jubilee Sully are a writing duo thus unfamiliar to the world of Smith's Point. This is the only episode in the entire run of the show that credits them, and there is virtually no information about either party on the internet or in any of the archives containing documents and ephemera pertinent to production. My best estimate, then, is that neither person actually exists, that the names were pseudonyms chosen to obscure the true identity of the writers of this episode. We cannot concretely identify the reason behind this obfuscation without first confirming that the names are indeed pseudonyms, but likely the choice was related to the episode's extremely chaotic and rushed production and the extended use of material from a previous episode. This would have been a perspicacious choice were it the case, as Halloween Party is the lowest-rated episode of the first season of Smith's Point, and considered by many to be one of the weaker episodes of the series. There is fan and professional speculation as to which of the writers in the Season 1 writer's room are responsible for this episode, but no confirmation exists. Some posit that this was the first instance of Smith's Point bringing in a ghostwriter, in order to allow all formal writing attention to go to the season finale, although this seems unlikely, as the first confirmed occurrence of such a practice didn't occur until two years later, during Season 3. I'll note here also that Fran Ross, who wrote the 1974 novel Oreo, is rumored to have been hired to punch up some of the jokes on Smith's Point as early as Season 2, a position which would eventually lead to her writing job on The Richard Pryor Show, but no indication exists that she ever did so for this brief first season. And so, with Halloween Party, which is titled in reference to the episode of The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet by the same name, Smith's Point encounters, for the first time, a narrative constructed by a quote-unquote empty name, a proper noun which exists without a referent. In a world so internally obsessed with names and name theory, it is relevant to explore the name theory of the external constructing world and to examine briefly the implications such exploration brings to the fictional world in turn. So let us turn briefly to the notion of the empty name. The problem of the empty name essentializes into the ability to make meaning from that which is inherently without meaning. For example, we are able to make meaning of the name Tracy Reed because the name Tracy Reed is given meaning by the object it refers to, the actress playing Anne Olivia. Even the fictional Anne Olivia's name is given meaning by direct reference to an existent object, the co-owner of the Do Come In. We can identify both names' meanings, in other words, because they have a direct object reference. However, we are still able to make meaning and location of Ladybird A and Jubilee Sully. They are the writers of this episode. Despite being unable to identify the object which the names refer to and, in our understanding of the names as pseudonyms, possessing the knowledge that the names refer to nothing, to people who don't exist. Gottlob Frege's sense and reference theory offers a solution to this problem in the form of separating the sense of the name what the name expresses, from the object of the name, the thing the name indicates. In the case of Jubilee Sully, for example, the argument would be that meaning can be made of the name because we can identify the sense of Jubilee Sully as expressing one of the people who wrote Season 1, Episode 5, despite knowing that the referent object of Jubilee Sully doesn't exist. And so meaning is made from sense and not reference. The meaning is made from oblivion and it cohabitates with its own meaninglessness. 
There is a rhetorical weight, then, in the conjuring of an empty name, particularly in the invocation of an empty name as creator. It casts over the figurative world of this episode of Smith's Point a sense of tedium and terror, of oblivion. As alluded to previously, the production of Halloween Party was notoriously rushed and overshadowed by preparations for the following episode, Election Fever, which would serve as the season one finale to Smith's Point. A sprawling political opera, Election Fever dominated much of the financial and literal real estate of the back half of the first season of Smith's Point. It is useful to consider Halloween Party as inversely codependent with Election Fever, in the sense that Halloween Party necessarily shrank as Election Fever necessarily grew, making today's episode largely existent in the negative space of its successor, which we'll cover next week. Reportedly, the set pieces for Election Fever cost significantly more than initially planned by executive in charge of production, Arthur Fellows, who had previously done the job for The Invaders, The Fugitive, and Twelve O'Clock High, and Martin Starger, the president of ABC, personally held Bill Craig responsible for finding places to cut corners to compensate. As such, much of the budget allocated for Halloween Party was redirected to Election Fever, the story of Halloween Party was significantly diminished from its initial conception, which saw the episode taking place at the party and not after it, and the episode was reimagined as a quote-unquote bottle episode, with an extended flashback sequence shoehorned in to pad the runtime. A bottle episode, coming from Outer Limits creator Leslie Stevens's term, Bottle Show, refers to a television episode made in a short amount of time for a low budget. As with Smith's Point, bottle episodes are typically inserted into a season so that more of the show's budget can be directed to a more important episode. Halloween Party features several hallmarks of the traditional bottle episode. It involves only the main cast, and it plays out on a single set. This parsimony is pushed further, however, in its camera work, in that most of the episode unfolds in an ostensibly unbroken take from a single camera angle, a view of the sitting room which is slightly lower than center and looking upwards. This angle, which is meant to have the effect of the audience peering out of the Harris's television screen, was conceived by Smith's Point cinematographer Barbara Peters. The choice reportedly infuriated Martin Starcher, who was quoted later as saying, I asked them to cut back, and they filmed a goddamn episode of Greatest Performances. This comment, of course, would not be entirely accurate, as most episodes of Greatest Performances at the time did in fact feature a multi-camera setup. The single shot of Halloween Party does contribute, however, to a flattening of the world which feels theatrical, one which contributes to the sense of Halloween Party as unfolding in a dreamy night world version of the Do Come In, a rhetorical world where people and emotions cycle in and out, repeat themselves, and ultimately bury themselves under layers and layers of meaning. This feeling is notably disrupted in the coda of the episode, which features a diagonal shot from the front door. Barbara Peters would go on to have a career as a film director, specializing in low-budget drive-in and exploitation movies, including Bury Me an Angel, Summer School Teachers, Humanoids from the Deep, and The Dark Side of Tomorrow. As with every episode of Smith's Point, I'm going to give a centering topic for our deconstruction, something you can keep an ear open for as the program unfolds. For Halloween Party, our centerpiece will be the notion of dream and memory, specifically dream and memory as they exist as mediums of interpretation. 
dream and memory in our deconstructive understanding exist to some extent as prisms into which direct singular truth shines and out of which story is refracted. The task of reassembling truth from the fracture is akin to that of Maxwell's demon, an ordering which is only attainable theoretically. The goat has crossed the threshold and is in the entryway of the house. I cannot end this episode until I have told you one true thing about myself. With that in mind, let's begin Season 5, Episode 6, Getting Greg's Goat. The cold open of Halloween Party is unusual for the first season of Smith's Point, which primarily followed industry trends of the time in using the first scene to briefly set up and preview the plot engine for the episode, i.e. Essie discovering that her book is missing pages. In Halloween Party, however, the cold open is non-essential and used as filler. It features stock footage of the various rooms of the Do Come In playing while the credits roll. The Do Come In is built like this. Attic, Honeymoon Suite, Episode 1 only. Third floor, Master Bedroom, Bathroom, Luke and CJ's room, Essie's room, Bathroom. Second floor, The Blue Room, The Red Room, Bathroom. The lavender room, the ocean room, bathroom. First floor, the sitting room, bathroom. The dining room, the kitchen, staff bedrooms, bathroom. The passage to the Smith's Point Pint, the Smith's Point Pint. Bathroom, kitchen, staff bathroom. The shooting set is built like this. Bathroom set, guest and master bedroom set, children's room set, sitting room set, outdoor set. The kitchen, dining room, and Smith's Point pint were constructed as needed. The passage is never shown. Presumably this cold open was inserted so that the episode would fill the entire 22 minutes allotted to it, but the lack of Andy Park's usual score and the emptiness of the rooms contribute to an eerie feeling which will be compounded later in the episode that of seeing something we aren't supposed to see. There's a dissonance also in experiencing the shots of the room and the series credits at the same time. The spectator is presented with the fiction and with the evidence of its fictitiousness, which is unusual because the medium of the sitcom is most commonly produced to be consumed uncritically as truth. The ability to differentiate fact from fiction, and the now common knowledge of story and television production, will almost always keep a spectator from fully believing the fiction of any given sitcom. No viewer assumes, for example, that the Partridge family is indeed a real family, but it is usually the duty or at least the interest of the fiction to help maintain itself by aiding the viewers in dulling or burying the parts of their consciousness which contextualize. This is why, as another example, sitcoms don't show actors out of character during the episode. Clips of the actors in character are pieced together to give the illusion that the figure you're experiencing is always functioning in the way you're viewing them. The spectator can pretend to believe this because they are not directly presented with evidence to the contrary. And so it's curious if there is indeed such an interest in aiding the spectator in consuming uncritically that such a lurid and ugly symbol of production would dominate the very first moments of the story. Many speculations exist for the inclusion of this common but seemingly counterintuitive device, and Jhumpale Matterson addresses the dissonance particularly as it pertains to the early 70s in a chapter of her book, 
Smith in the sitcom, which we've mentioned before. Of the Brady Bunch, she writes, 1971, Nixon's first term, Agnew VP. On February 13th, Laos is invaded by South Vietnamese troops. On March 1st, the weather underground explodes a bomb in the men's bathroom of the U.S. Capitol. On April 9th, Charles Manson is sentenced to death. On July 10th, there is a coup attempt in Morocco. In November, the month after this episode airs, the United States will test a thermonuclear warhead at Amchika Island in Alaska. Although McGovern had not at the time secured the Democratic nomination, the palpable lack of a liberal teen pop sensation seemed to ensure a second term of conservatism poised to fracture the already scorched and threadbare narrative of the country. Were Americans really so able to slip into suspension of disbelief that they could ignore the tangible cries of construction splattered across these shagged and wooded homes in serif type? Or were they so disenchanted that, credits over Mystic World or not, they would have looked at the sunken living room and floating steps of the Brady Bunch house and thought, that could never exist, and so why waste the extra airtime trying to pretend it could? It is worth noting that the stock footage of the bathrooms of the do come in all exclude toilets. This was common for the time as showing a toilet on television was considered moderately offensive and all but banned in shows meant to appeal to a wide family audience. The first notable showing of a quote-unquote toilet in such a show would occur in 1957 in Leave it to Beaver. In this instance, however, the toilet's tank was shown and not the toilet itself. Significant reference to a toilet in a sitcom would not again occur until the sound of a flushing toilet, which did not provide any visual of the toilet itself, which appeared in All in the Family the same year Halloween Party aired, 1971. It is unclear whether the implication of these images is that the toilet is lurking, unseen in the house, or that the bathrooms of the do come in, like those of the Brady house, simply didn't have toilets. And we're into the theme song. Here's the story of a lovely lady who was bringing up three very lovely girls. All of them had hair of gold, like their mother, the youngest one in curls. It's the story of a man named Brady who was busy with three boys of his own. They were four men living all together. A static establishing shot of the house. The front door of the house creaks open. A shot of the sitting room on the first floor of the do come in, all decorated for a Halloween party. Sabrina, Anne Olivia, and Melvin 
sit on the green and yellow olefin couch. Virgil leans on the right arm of the couch next to Sabrina, and the three Harris children, Luke, Essie, and CJ, sit on the brown and green woven carpet on the ground. Rose McClellan, the reporter, peers through the lens of her camera, leaning against the left wing of the couch, and Gladys Elstob stands in the background. The group is peering wide-eyed into the television camera, which is positioned in-world where the television is. We'll come to learn that they've just finished watching a scary movie. The dialogue of this scene comes in almost immediately, but for a split second there's the eerie specter of silent gaze, the group peering blankly into the camera, a gaze which occurs only once in real life, in 1971 at the time of shooting, and which watched nobody at the time, but which, having been permanently captured, is enacted and re-enacted on the spectator any time the tape is played. A permanent looking. Boy, that movie sure was scary, says Essie. Everybody jumps at the sound of her voice. Laugh track. Yes, says Melvin. Perhaps we shouldn't have let you kids watch that. Perhaps you shouldn't have let your maid watch that either, says Sabrina, hiding her face in the apron of her costume. Laugh track. DJ chimes in. Oh, come on, Sabrina. There's no such thing as monsters. You're not scared, asks Luke. No, says DJ defiantly. Boo, cries Luke, and DJ yelps. He tries to run away, but is stuck in place because of the costume he and Essie are wearing. They are dressed as a two-headed beast, one large cotton shirt, presumably Melvin's, over the both of them. Laugh track. Now cut it out, you two, says Aunt Olivia. I think it's time you kids go to bed while we clean up from the party. This is one of the only spoken references to the Halloween party itself, which, as mentioned, was the primary dramatic event in the episode's initial conception. Physical references to the party litter the set. Ghost decorations made of cotton sheets and balloons on the mantel, black and orange tissue paper streamers above the couch, paper plates and napkins scattered on the oak coffee table with remnants of yellow sponge cake on them. Art department had Aileen Morgan reused much of the party material from A Delicate Situation to make the most of the small budget. The inclusion of the party in the narrative world of this episode contributes to the sense that we, as spectators, have arrived after the events of the episode, that the party was the actual dramatic event meant to be witnessed, and that, in being privy to these people in its aftermath, we are witnessing something we shouldn't be seeing. We have somehow gained the ability to observe the world of Smith's Point in the absence of mass spectatorship. It's an alienating feeling, a dirty one, an effect further enforced by the lack of literal action in the episode. The children, still afraid, remain frozen in place. The goat is in Greg's attic bedroom. All right, soldiers, march, says Aunt Olivia. The children shake their heads fearfully, first at each other and then at Aunt Olivia who gives her husband a bemused look. Marjorie appears, entering from where the kitchen would be. Presumably, she didn't watch the movie. Well, I'm off, everybody, she says cheerfully, and strides across the sitting room. She pauses just before the threshold and says, Why, you all look like you've seen a ghost. There is the notion here that Marjorie, having not received the information of the film, is able to cross the threshold of the inn because she's unenlightened, that the others, having become enlightened, 
can only leave the episode once they have exercised the terror of knowing which has accompanied the viewing of the scary movie, a movie whose plot is purposefully kept unclear. We can read this choice as a sort of commentary on the lurking terror of the news cycle and the rise of Nixonian conservatism in the early 1970s. We'll note that unlike the Brady Bunch, the Vietnam War canonically exists in the world of Smith's Point. Marjorie turns herself sideways to fit her costume through the doorway and exits. Marjorie is dressed as a giant cup of coffee. Melvin returns Anne Olivia's gaze. Come to think of it, Anne, I'm a little spooked too, he says sheepishly. Maybe we all ought to have some hot milk and settle down. Oh, all right, I'll put some on, Frady Cat, says Anne Olivia kindly. You kids put on your pajamas, and Luke, help CJ wash that blood off his face. The three children stand and exit towards the grand staircase to change out of their costumes, DJ and Essie as the two-headed monster, Luke as a figure I am unable to identify. The Halloween costumes in this episode are designed by Sandra Stewart in her first credited role as a costume designer. Stewart would work in the costumer and wardrobe departments on Paper Moon, Blackula, Coffee, and the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, and design costumes for The Gift of Love, Cindy, Minstrel Man, and Visions. The crediting of Stewart makes it evident that Luke is wearing a costume, and it can be reasonably implied that he has constructed the costume to communicate information about a certain figure, but I am unable to identify who the figure is. This is not an empty name situation. In fact, it is something of the inverse, because there is a clear, presumably existent object, but because of our lack of a secret special knowledge, we cannot identify the expression, are only able to consume the symbol which gestures towards the expression, and in this way meaning is lost, gone to nothing, us being able to identify the communication, but not that which is being communicated. Luke wears a bald cap, on top of which he has placed a black beanie. Around his neck is a necklace of brown glass beads. He wears a white linen shirt, over which he has placed a green knit sweater with three bleached stripes in it. His pants are loose tan linen pants, and he wears blue loafers. His fingernails are painted black, and it looks like he has a fake earring in his left ear. The children are gone. Children are so funny, says Anne Olivia. It was only a movie. Yeah, only a movie, says Sabrina, who is cleaning plates off of the oak coffee table. Her hands shake, making the plates shake and spill cake everywhere. Laugh track. Rose helps Sabrina and remarks, Harder for them to know it's not real. Yes, agrees Sabrina. When I was that age, I'd wake up every day thinking it'd finally be the day I'd meet Little Orphan Annie. Laugh track. Too bad Essie is feeling sick, poor thing, but I'm sort of glad she didn't see that film, says Melvin. Joan Lightfoot, as Essie, is noticeably absent from this episode in a matter connected to the singing scene from Season 1, Episode 4 of Smith's Point, A Delicate Situation. Studio executive Luther Podran, on a cue from Martin Starger, began bringing in the Harris children for screen tests for a potential animated series. This idea would ultimately lead nowhere after the meager viewership of the first season of Smith's Point, but the idea would be recycled in some capacity into The Brady Kids in the following year, 
1972. I'll go put on the milk, says Aunt Olivia. I'll help, says Marcia has seen the goat. Gee, that'd make a great shot, huh, says Rose from behind the camera. Study of an American family. Yeah, your first Pulitzer, jokes Melvin. Sabrina, why don't you play some music to lighten the mood? And the three exit. This is noticeably the first time in the series that Sabrina and Virgil have a scene alone together. As previously discussed, it is unlikely that a romance between the two was part of the original conception of the series, because any kind of change or progression in the relationships between the main cast would imply a linearity of time which was just not true, at least initially, of the world of Smith's Point. With the introduction of this relationship potential by writer Sybil Edelman in Season 1, Episode 2, The Great Book Caper, the perfect circularity of time in Smith's Point was disrupted. This was no longer a world which created and destroyed itself each week for the purpose of gaze, but which existed even in the absence of gaze. We see this logic reaching its appropriate conclusion in this episode, in the act of witnessing the world in such an unobserved moment. The romance plot was likely not intended to create such a seismic disruption to the world, but instead a simple ploy to attract more viewers. Likely, the seasoned Edelman would have picked up on the enormous success of the prior year's love story, and attempted to capitalize on the newfound popularity of such a genre by bringing a star-crossed romance to Smith's Point. The two go over to the record player, which is to the left of the couch, and begin shifting through the collection of records underneath the side table on which the player rests. They begin a conversation which is spoken entirely in quotation. Sabrina remarks, We need something limp, toneless, and happy. How about Doris Day? Laugh track. Viewers at the time would recognize limp, toneless, and happy as being a reference to Brian O'Nolan's postmodern work at Swim, Two Birds. Virgil says, I can barely see anything in this dark. Feels like I'm in a dream, in a line loosely adapted from Arthur Whaley's translation of Murasaki Shikibu's The Tale of Genji. If I were in a dream, I wouldn't be so scared. I'd sprout wings and fly right out over the ocean, quips Sabrina. Fly, dream wings, which is a concept lifted from Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. The goat is traveling down the floating stairs of the Brady house into the backyard. Virgil shifts closer to Sabrina. This brings us to one of the most potent dissonances within the deconstruction of sitcom, which is the interpretation of gesture as it relates to modernism. Here is that which on the surface is purely quotidian and psychological, which communicates naturalism but which underneath is all construction, recirculation. These are people who, despite appearing to exist with will, exist only in gesture, who have no interiority beyond their own mechanical construction. It is the reason all sitcoms are post-modern. They exist in the destruction of modernist interiority. Virgil holds up a record for Sabrina's consideration. She smiles. Oh, that one really is lovely. Virgil puts on the record, which is a recording of the score highlights from Franz Lahar's The Merry Widow. The waltz begins to play. say not what I may not let you hear. Still that swaying dance is saying love me dear. Every touch of 
waters tells me what I know says to you it's true it's true I love you so Rose has appeared in the doorway with her camera she has captured Sabrina and Virgil dancing. Oh, Rose, says Sabrina, embarrassed. Can't you put that camera down? Someday you're going to make something out of nothing. Funny, I have the opposite problem, says Rose, blithely. I photograph something, say a fire, and immediately it is unreal to me. I've captured it. It's lost all meaning. Rose's costume is a black velvet dress with black satin gloves. She has on black patent leather pumps, black stockings, and a scarf made from the velvet fabric of her dress is wrapped around her head. Embedded in the fabric is small mirrored diamonds, which, according to Edward Mader's book Hollywood and History, Costume Design and Film, are shaped like small cameras. Rose has wrapped the velvet headscarf around a two-way mirror where her face should be, giving the impression that her face itself is a reflection. Well, I'm off, everybody, says Marjorie. She turns herself sideways to fit her costume through the doorway and exits. Marjorie is dressed as a giant cup of coffee. Spooky hearing the wind blow like that, says Rose. Because we're so near the sea, offers Sabrina, who is dressed as Alice from the Brady Bunch. Luke, DJ, and Izzy enter in blue flannel pajamas. We're all cleaned up and ready for sweets, says Essie with a toothy grin. Laugh track. Anne Olivia enters carrying a silver tray of seven pale green ceramic mugs of hot milk, Melvin trailing behind. I'm glad you kids are wearing flannel, says Anne Olivia. It's cold tonight. Listen to that wind. The family settles, shifting their opening position slightly. Alice sits on the mauve olefin couch between Rose and Carol. Essie sits on Carol's lap. Luke and DJ sit on the floor with Melvin, and Virgil leans against the left arm of the chair. Cindy takes a sip of her mug and immediately says, I'm still not tired, laugh track. Give it a minute, offers Luke. Essie takes another sip. I'm still not tired, she cries. Laugh track. The goat has entered and is on the second floor of the house with the bedrooms of Marcia, Jan, Cindy, Bobby, Peter, Mike, and Carol. I have an idea, says Alice. My mother had an old trick for getting anybody to sleep. She says, I'm going to tell you about my day yesterday. I'm going to tell you everything I can possibly remember. The color of my shoes the amount of sugar I put into my coffee in the morning, what I said and what I did from the moment I woke up to the moment I fell asleep. And by the time I get to the point in the memory I fall asleep, you will all be asleep, guaranteed. And she begins to speak. Lady Bird A and Jubilee Sully exist collectively as an anagram of all the writers for season one of Smith's Point, Bill Craig, Sybil Edelman, Al Carmines, Audrey Young, and Jude Taylor, which is and welcome back to Revisiting, Revisiting Smith's Point, the re-listen podcast where I take you episode by episode through a rewatch podcast for a 70s sitcom gem. Welcome to episode six, 
Today we'll be speaking of Season 1, Episode 6 of Revisiting Smith's Point, which revisits Season 1, Episode 6 of Smith's Point, Election Fever. There's a brief cold open followed by a synopsis of Election Fever, with additional production information and an introduction to the figurative discourse around which the speaker's deconstruction will orbit. The episode then segues into a deconstruction of the episode itself, keeping in mind the aforementioned figurative discourse. Firstly, let's speak of the synopsis which the speaker gives for Season 1, Episode 6 of Smith's Point, a synecdoche for the 22-minute plot which the episode contains and which the episode of this podcast of Revisiting Smith's Point will be examining. The synopsis given is as follows. Season 1, Episode 6. In the Season 1 finale of Smith's Point, election fever comes to the do-come-in when two mayoral candidates plan rallies at the inn for the same day. Firstly, let us notate the contextualizing of the episode within the wider canon of Smith's Point. The description begins with, Season 1, Episode 6, which, in the Western understanding, supremacizes the contextualization over the content itself. The next piece of information given is a prepositional phrase, in the season one finale of Smith's Point, implying that the information which is to follow is somehow contained inside of the linguistic object of, quote, season one finale. Not only this, however, that this concept of season one finale is somehow modified by its being possessed by, quote, unquote, Smith's Point, in the season one finale of Smith's Point. The first concept introduced as being held inside of this modified container of Season 1 finale is the title of the episode itself, Election Fever. In the Season 1 finale of Smith's Point, Election Fever comes, here servicing not as a synecdoche for the episode, but instead as an idiom which ostensibly holds no contextual rhetorical power outside of its already pre-understood idiomatic implications, but which in fact holds contextualizing power because of our, the spectator's, knowledge of the phrase as also functioning in other locations as the title of the episode. The dual functionality of the phrase election fever as it exists in rhetorical relation to the concept of Smith's point will later become crucial in the speaker's insistence that the fervor of the election is something which exists presupposing a linear progression in the figurative world of Smith's point, one which comes as a logical middle stepping stone between the unnamed terror present in Halloween party and the upcoming 1972 presidential election. I will take a step backward from the deconstruction here to say that I believe such a claim, that Smith's point is building a purposeful and progressive rhetorical world with the intention of commenting on the terror of the looming 1972 election, to be basely absurd. It cuts against both the concrete evidence of the utter meaninglessness of the sloppy and rushed Halloween party episode, and seemingly contradicts the well-documented political unicacy imposed on most mainstream family-oriented media at the time. Smith's Point was neither a well-planned-out television show, nor a piece of political satire, and to suggest either is to commit a kind of permanent suicide of rhetoric, one which commentary is basically entirely discredited because it features a fan insert character, which means that while all else that is described is accurate, the analysis can't be taken seriously because the world is not remembered correctly. It is a false memory, and so it is all permanently sullied. The fan character in question is that of Esther Essie Harris, who is meant to be the middle child of the Harris family between Luke and CJ, and who, as anyone who has seen Smith's Point will know, 
does not exist, nor does Joan Lightfoot, the actress meant to play her. So the whole podcast is made moot. I don't understand why someone would do that, which is not to mention the incorrect usage of the word synecdoche. And welcome back to Revisiting, Revisiting, Revisiting Smith's Point, the lecture series where I re-listen to a podcast which appraises or rewatches a shot of the Brady parents' bedroom. Inside stands the first PTA woman, who is given no name in the crediting of the episode, Mr. Binkley, the second PTA woman, Mike, Carol, and Mrs. Gould. The goat, having been let go by Greg when he crashed into Alice, runs into the master bedroom between Greg and the second PTA woman. Greg rushes in after the goat and the group scatters, a shot of Mike and Carol looking desolate, a shot of Mr. Binkley looking stern. Mrs. Gould hides in the closet. The other two women scatter. Greg grabs a shower curtain to try to trap the goat. That's my good shower curtain, cries Carol. The goat runs out from the attached bathroom, through the crowd, out the bedroom door, and travels down the stairs, striding across the first floor sitting room of the dew come in. I've been having this dream. I had it every night this summer this all began. In the dream, I have to go to the bathroom very badly. The situation changes. In some versions, I am at Disneyland and I am in high school, and I am with a bunch of other high school boys. We are in a choir together. In some versions, I am seeing a play in an abandoned building. Sometimes I am living in a dormitory with a collection of other boys who are my age, which is my age at the time of dreaming. The dream adapts itself to different circumstances, but always I very badly have to go to the bathroom. In my waking life I am ashamed to go to the bathroom in public, and sometimes in private. It's not something I like to do. It makes me feel bad makes me feel shame. But in the dream I have to go to the bathroom, and I find a bathroom, and I go into the bathroom and I go into a stall and the toilet is dirty. It is covered in shit and I feel disgust, and I cannot possibly go to the bathroom in that toilet because it is so dirty. Some versions of the dream I try to find another stall and find that toilet to also be dirty. The constellation of disgust changes, but always the toilet is too dirty for me to go to the bathroom. The bathrooms in these dreams are enormous and cavernous. Some of them exist with different chambers. Some of them exist as labyrinths. Always in the dream, I am having to go to the bathroom, and I am ashamed and I cannot go to the bathroom because the bathroom is too dirty. The summer this began, I had this dream every night for weeks. Please change the channel. The next morning. The first non-static sitting room shot of the episode. A diagonal view of the entryway. Marjorie opens the door and enters the interior of the house. Marjorie's moving out of the inn is the first indication that the writers are already planning on phasing her character out. This decision was mutually agreed upon. Avra Petrides had an interest in pursuing more stage work, 
but there is the sense that Marjorie as a character was destined to be written off of the show from her very conception. She is the only character on Smith's Point whose name does not refer to anything, whose name exists without greater meaning. She has no reference or interiority. It is a cold morning for autumn. Marjorie arrives in a pale blue overcoat with gray traveling gloves and gray stockings over black patent leather flats. She takes off her gray gloves, hangs her overcoat on the light brown oak coat rack in the entryway, smooths her blue work dress, and surveys the sitting room. The sitting room is clean. There is no evidence of the party. Sabrina is asleep on the couch under a crocheted blanket in blue and green squares. She stirs. Good morning, says Marjorie. No, stay, I've got breakfast. Sabrina murmurs her appreciation, and Marjorie begins to open the living room curtains, which are gauzy and thin and made of a patterned lace. She leaves the camera's frame to go to the kitchen, where we hear her putting on the coffee and turning on the oven. She returns while the oven heats, tidying the sitting room, folding up blankets, straightening stacks of books. She lights a fire in the fireplace. Eventually, Marjorie comes to rest on the arm of the love seat where Sabrina is, now half awake under the blanket. She looks around the room for a long moment, gives Sabrina's head a pat, and delivers a monologue. You know, I think something horrible must have happened to me in another life. I've never so much as this morning felt how simple things are. It was cold for October and so I lit a fire. It was dark in this room and so I opened the curtains. So I think maybe something horrible must have happened to me years and years ago to grant me this simplicity. I might have been burned at the stake, or flayed, or shot, or crucified, or slid open and filled with rocks, but I don't mind. I like now that I am hungry and I eat. I like that I am tired and I sleep. Maybe it's in place of something else, something grander, but I think I prefer this. I think that if the sun shone full on my face, I'd be quickly bored or worse afraid. So I think maybe it's good that I am the way I am. Because last night I was afraid, but I feel clean and existent this morning. Sabrina stretches and smiles at her, and the two women take hands. We'll note Marjorie's speech here as being oddly predictive in some ways of the speech given by Cunegonde at the end of Mark Ravenhill's 2013 adaptation of Candide, the final scene of which sees Candide awaken from a 400-year slumber to reunite in the present day with the now-aged Cunegonde. Candide is in the Candide room of the Pangloss Institute. And so Cunegonde enters, and she's 400 years old, and Sarah is still in the room in this adaptation, and she, Cunegonde, gives a speech, and she basically says, I've lived through all these atrocities, and I'm ready for my kiss. I'm ready for my kiss, Candide. <laughs> 